All right, so we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Mark. This is Peter's story as told through his disciple, John Mark. And the title for today's service is Murder, Sex, and Power, and just how much we see uh, a striving for these things in our society today. We're focusing today on the death of John the Baptist. We were introduced to him a few weeks ago uh, when he was baptizing Jesus, but he first came on the scene in verse 1. They open up the story here with him, just like in the Gospel of Luke, it almost opens up with the story of John the Baptist's birth. Um, Verse 2, it starts out, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, God says, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. All right, so before God comes, before Messiah comes, he's going to send his messenger to prepare people's way. How's he going to do that? As a voice of crying out in the wilderness, he's going to say, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's what he's calling people to do is turn from your sin. And it's, a lot of times people think that they're Christian just because they believe in a, a resurrection event. I mean, we know that Jesus was risen from the dead. That doesn't make you necessarily a Christian. The devil believes Jesus was risen from the dead, but that doesn't make him a Christian, right? He knows that to be true. So uh, John is preaching here, and it's foundational gospel, and you'll see the disciples doing it later on. Part of becoming a follower of Christ is turning from your sins and recognizing that Jesus is the only way of salvation and that you place your faith and trust in him. Okay, so we left off last week in Mark 6 where Jesus leaves Nazareth, shakes off the dust that is on his feet and tells his disciples, whenever they go out to these towns, I want you to do that. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should, there's that message again, people repent. This is how you make way for Messiah to come. This is how you make way for Jesus to change your life is you turn from your sin and then he starts showing you the way to go. Okay, okay. So they go out and they cast many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now the disciples did this. They're seeing, we're seeing the disciples do what Jesus did. It's pretty incredible. The key to this happening to cities all over Israel is the group of 12 decided we're going to multiply our ministry by going out in groups of two. Now, I'm sure within them, when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to break this group down and we're going to multiply so we're hitting cities everywhere, I'm sure they thought, man, I, I feel really comfortable with my group of 12. Typically, that's what we can do. We can get comfortable just being around our inner circle, our closest friends, and not reach out to the world around us. But Jesus says, I am sending you out. We always have to have that outreach mentality. And as they go, we're going out, They were telling people, you need to turn from your sin, prepare your hearts for the coming of Messiah, and they were casting out demons and healing them. Now, while this is going on and the ministry is multiplying, we're introduced to a new character in the story of Jesus, a man named King Herod. He hears of these miracles going on, and Jesus' name is now becoming known because they multiplied their efforts. Now, exactly who is this King Herod? Well, he's the son, okay, Herod Antipas is his full name. He is the son of Herod the Great. If you remember Herod the Great, he is the king when Jesus was a baby that was trying to kill him and wiped out all the children in uh, Bethlehem. So Herod the Great, uh, he's not a true Jew, 
but in order to rule the Jews, he kind of acts like one at times, but he basically acts as a governor over the region of Palestine, or Israel today, under the, the leadership of Caesar Augustus at the time, okay? Now, Augustus dies, and another uh, Caesar comes in, that is Tiberius, okay? And Herod dies, and then he breaks down his kingdom among four of his sons. He had 10 sons total by five different women. Uh, he killed one of his own sons. That, that shows you how crazy this guy was uh, because he wasn't sure how loyal his son was to him. Uh, and he had one son uh, from Miriamne, Aristobulus. And Aristobulus ruled in the region of Judea for a while before like Pontius Pilate would come in. Uh, and Aristobulus had a number of children, but two of which are Herodias, his daughter, okay, and his son Herod Agrippa, which you read about in the book of Acts. Herod Agrippa being the first, being the son of Herod the Great, okay? Now notice this, Herod has a son called Herod Aristobulus, Herod Alexander, Herod Philip the Tetrarch, Herod Philip the first, Herod Antipas. I mean, this guy, it's like me naming all of my sons Steve Willis, all right? And then they might just change middle name. That's what an egomaniac he was. Even his uh, granddaughter was named Herodias. It's like Stephanie for me, right? So they're, they're, they're given all these names. Now watch this, watch this. His son, Herod the Philip the first, married his niece, his brother's daughter, Herodias. Okay, this woman is kind of like the Jezebel of the New Testament. She's always longing. We, we don't learn a lot from her, about her in the New Testament. Look at the story about her today. Uh, but if, if you read historical accounts, she was always grabbing for more power. Eventually, her trying to grab for more power got her husband uh, exiled because she was such a power grabber. Okay, uh, so she marries... Her uncle, Herod Philip I, and Herod Philip I goes to live in Rome. Now, their other, Aristobulus' brother, her other uncle, was Herod Antipas. That's the Herod that we're talking about in Mark chapter 6. And Herod Antipas had a political marriage to the princess of Nabatea, okay, King Eridus' daughter, and he wasn't real thrilled with her. He goes and visits his brother, Herod Philip I, and Herod Antipas has more power than Herod Philip I. So what do you think Herodias is going to do? His wife. She seduces him, or he seduces her, however you want to say it. So Herod Antipas sneaks out of Rome in the middle of the night and takes his brother's wife with him. Man, here's the thing. Like, this is a crazy family. Like, the, the patriarch, like, kills his sons. All right, they marry their nieces. Uh, the niece runs off with the other brothers. Like, if you're ever feeling bad about your dysfunctional family, just say, well, thank God we're not like the Herods, okay? <laughs> just compare yourself to them and you'll always come out smelling like a rose, okay? So Herod Antipas goes back to Israel, to the region of Galilee. He just ruled, ruled a quarter. That's why he's called a tetrarch. It's four areas. He goes there. He's got Herodias with him. He files for a Roman divorce, uh, even though it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to happen, he, she divorces him, he divorces the princess of Nabatea, and now they're living together uh, around 27 AD. We see them living together at the time of John the Baptist, okay? And we see that Herodias really doesn't like John the Baptist. Bible tells us that 
she had a grudge. She had something against him. And she wants to put John the Baptist to death, but the Bible tells she could not. Why? Because her husband was protecting John the Baptist. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept John the Baptist safe. Now, even though he's a wicked man, he knows he's got the conviction that John the Baptist is preaching the word of God. And he knows he's a powerful man in word and deed. And so when Herod Antipas would hear him preach, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Like he liked to hear this guy preach. He wouldn't repent from his sins. Uh, He wouldn't turn from those. But he liked to hear the guy preach. He was good order. Okay, so he would come and listen to John, and eventually John gets put in prison, but that's part of the way that Herod protects him is by putting him in prison so he knows where he is, and so his crazy wife can't knock him off, okay? Uh, So Herodias is always looking for a way to kill John the Baptist. She hates him, wicked woman. And one day she gets an opportunity when Herod throws a birthday party for himself. Again, they're just a little weird, right? He's throwing a birthday party for himself. Now, this par- at this party, he invites his nobles, okay, and his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. These are all men, okay? Now, I can't even say in mixed audiences what this party would look like and the, what they would do. But just imagine this. All the men would come together at this fortress, okay, that he had in Macarius down by the Dead Sea. They, they, would, they would come to this fortress and hang out there, all these men, and they would bring in women to dance. It was kind of like, I guess the best thing for me to say in mixed audience, imagine a quote-unquote gentleman's club, but there's nothing gentle about these men, okay? They're there, and they bring in all these women to dance for them, and they're all getting drunk, and it's just a lot of really bad stuff goes on at these parties. And Herod is there having this, and his wife's in the back room or whatever. Now, Herodias has a daughter named uh, Salome, And she comes in with all the rest of the women dancers at the Gentleman Club, and she dances. And you can imagine what kind of dance it is. And she pleased Herod and his guests. So all these men are like, oh, look at her. And the king says to the girl. Now, the reason I'm saying the girl is it doesn't call call her a woman. This gives you insight into Herod and his friends. It doesn't say to the woman. It says to the girl, okay? Now, back in Jewish culture, um, a woman was about considered a woman at age 14 or 15. So what does that tell us about Herodias' daughter? She sends her daughter in to dance before these men. She's probably 12 or 13 years old, 14 at the oldest. Like, this is sick. You're watching this 14-year-old girl dance at this gentleman's club. And these guys like it so much that he says to this young girl, ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vows to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Like that's how much he was attracted to her and what she did. So she goes out immediately and she asks her mom, imagine this 13-year-old girl running to her mother. And she says, for what should I ask? And Herodias sees her opportunity to knock off John the Baptist. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. So here this Salome comes in and she immediately with haste comes to the king and asks saying, I want you to give me at once. I know she put a time frame on it, like not eventually. I know he's under a death sentence in prison. But right now, right here in front of everybody, 
this is my wish. I want you to bring me the head of John the Baptist. That's what her mother, but this little girl adds on a silver platter. That's where you get, we got something on a silver platter. It's from this story. So they bring it in. I mean, how sick do you have to be where 13-year-old girls are wanting to see a guy decapitated and then hold the head up? Hey, mama, look what I got you. These are some evil, wicked people. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath, he gave her a promise, and his guests, like, he was too prideful to go back and say, wait a minute, I didn't mean that. I need to take it back. You can't have that. He didn't want to break his word to her, so immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So here's the thing I want you to think about. I haven't covered this yet. It's in the story. But this is what you should be asking. What did John the Baptist do that was so offensive? Or what, what did he say that was so offensive to Herodias? Why did she hate him so much? I mean, just think about it. That's gross. Having a head, like, how evil do you have to be? It's one thing to hate somebody. It's another thing I want them decapitated and I want to hold their head in my hand. What did he do that was absolutely so offensive? What did he say that was so offensive that she wanted him dead? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it had almost nothing to do with the coming of Jesus Messiah. It was something that John had told Herod he needed to repent from to prepare the way for Messiah. It wasn't that Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews. It was something else. Herod put John in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's, Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, this is what I want you to see. This is why she is so upset. It's because John the Baptist is saying something about Herod, but he still considers, watch, she is still considered his brother Philip's wife. They got a divorce, but this is what John the Baptist is saying. I don't, care what you, what, I don't care what a piece of paper from Rome says. In God's eyes, she's still your brother's wife. You are living in an adulterous relationship. For John had been saying to Herod, had been saying, this is like over and over again. It wasn't just a one-time deal. He is calling Herod out publicly. You are supposed to be the leader of the Jewish people here and you are breaking God's law. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You are living in sin. Let me tell you what, if you want to be offensive to a culture, tell people God's definition of a marriage and expect them to follow it. This is something that we're even seeing in our country today, right? It's, it's been like that from the beginning, is God establishes his plan, which is one man, one woman, supposed to live together and make a commitment for one lifetime. That's what it means to be married in the eyes of God. To be married in the eyes of God, you have to have a man and a woman who have committed, we will live together until death do us part. We are committed to this relationship. So that leads to takeaway number one. Since God's first interaction with humankind was to institute marriage, Satan will always be at work to destroy it. I don't want you to forget this point. This is critical to what we're communicating today. Is Satan is always trying to destroy marriage. 
to destroy the family, to, to make us misunderstand or pervert the concept of one man being committed to one woman for one lifetime. For one man to only have sex for, with one woman, for one woman to only have sex with one man over the course of their entire lifetime. And what you see in our culture today, and it's been like this for thousands of years, is the devil is constantly trying to disrupt the intimate, the intimate relationship between one man and one woman for one lifetime. He's always at work to destroy that. Why is he always at work to destroy it? Well, I want to go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. We see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. But watch this, not just Adam. Male and female, he created them. So thus far, like God had been telling the animals to reproduce in their own image and the plants reproduce in their own image, like an apple tree produces apples, right? And so everything is reproducing in another image, but then here comes God says, let us make human beings in our image. We want them to look like us. And this is what I want you to understand just fundamentally is God designs marriage to help us to understand not just human beings created in the image of God, but marriage gives us an image of God. So God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And look at what they're doing. Every time that they're, they multiply, what are they reproducing? More images of God. Do you see that? So in the same way God reproduced human beings in his image, they look like him, right? <clears throat> We, when a man and woman come together and have a physical relationship, out of that relationship comes more images of God. And right now on the earth, we have about 7.5 billion images of God walking this earth, all designed to reflect the glory of God. But I want to just kind of give you an illustration for what I mean by this, about marriage being a picture of how God operates, okay? Um, first of all, like, when you go to a wedding, it says the, the two shall no longer be two, but they shall become what? Have you heard this? They shall become one flesh. It's like you, you go to a wedding and they have the two unity candles. Have you ever seen one of those? Where this family lights this candle and this family lights this candle. And then they come and they say their vows together. And they take the two candles and they light a candle in the middle. So now just one flame burns. And then what do they do with the two candles on the side? They blow them out. Why? Because they're no longer two, but you've got one flame, one love that is supposed to burn together until death do, does them part. And so here in the same way that those two become one flesh, yes, they are two, but they are one. It reflects the image of God. How so? In the same way that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in essence and will never be parted from one another, the first image that God gives us that we can understand how the Trinity operates is how a marriage is supposed to operate. So in the same way that the Holy Spirit honors God the Father and God the Father honors the Son, Son God the Father loves the Holy Spirit in the same way the Father of the house is supposed to love his wife. And the wife is supposed to be like the Holy Spirit in that she honors the Father of the home. 
And they, they work in a symbiotic relationship. And though they are three persons, they exist as one, just as you have two persons coming together, able to recreate more images of God, who when they get with someone of the opposite sex, you can have more images of God. There's something powerful about that, that idea of marriage. One man, one woman coming together. From that, it's the only thing in the universe that can produce an image of God. Man, it's powerful. Images of God who can worship God, who have eternal souls. How do they come together within the context of marriage? One man, one woman who become one flesh. It's a powerful thing. Um, this whole idea of image, it's a picture of. Um, reminds me of a story when I was in junior high. Um, in our junior highs, we had seventh, eighth, ninth grade. I don't know if you did that system, but I remember I was in seventh, seventh grade, and the guys on the football team were trying to get me together with a girl on the cheerleaders. Like the cheerleaders got together, and there was this girl named Michelle who didn't have a date to homecoming, and they were like, Hey, Stevie, you need to ask Michelle to go to the homecoming dance. Well, listen, I hadn't even hit puberty yet when I was 12. I don't think I hit puberty until I was like 16, okay? So I, wasn't even interested. I wasn't even interested in a girl. I'd never dated a girl before, and uh, they were like, you need to go out with Michelle. I'm like, I don't want to do it. But all the older guys, the ninth grade guys on the football team were pressuring me. You need to take Michelle to the dance. And I finally acquiesced, and I said, okay, I'll take her to the dance. But I didn't want to dance because the guys from where I grew up in East Bank, like, Guys didn't dance, all right? We hated dances. The only thing we would do is go out there and slow dance, and then we'd sit down and watch the girls dance out there, okay? And uh, this, is the way, this is the way we did a line dance. Like, line dance where I went to high school was like step to the left and right, then right to the left. This is the way I dance, like nerdy white guy dance, all right? So that's, this is the line. Like, that, that was line, just going horizontally back and forth. And then, you know, slow dance, you just go like this. You don't move your feet, okay? And uh, like... I knew I couldn't dance, all right? I didn't want to dance. I didn't want a girlfriend. I didn't want to go to homecoming. I didn't want to dress up in the things, but I just had so much peer pressure. Okay, I'll take her to the dance, all right? So come back the next day to school, and they say, well, you guys are dating now, right? I'm like, no, we're not dating. I'm just going to the dance. And they're like, no, you got a date. You can't be going to the homecoming. Like, she's your date for homecoming. You guys are dating. So now everybody's saying we're going together. And I'm like, how did this happen, right? And so, like, I want to go outside and play at lunch and play ball or whatever. But they were like, Willis, you got to sit with your girlfriend. The girls are coming to tell me, the cheerleaders are coming to me. You got to sit with Michelle during lunch. She doesn't think you like her. And I'm like, I really don't. Like, I just, so I have to sit there. So now I have to sit at the table with her at lunch to show that we're boyfriend and girlfriend to lead up to the homecoming dance. It's like two weeks away. So I'm like, okay, so I sit with her at lunch. Well, that's not enough. Because now, like, we, we've been going together for two or three days, and they're like, Willis, have you held her hand yet? She doesn't think you like her very much. I'm like, I don't want to hold her hand. Why would I want to do this? Like, this is gross, okay? And they're like, Willis, you got to hold your hand. And they called me kind of some homophobic slurs thrown my way, all right, challenged my manhood. I'm like, this is awful. Whatever. So the next day I go, because I don't want them calling me those names. I sit down, I'm like, hey, Michelle. And she's sitting there, and I just saw her hand, and I just, I grab her hand, and I'm just holding it. And all the girls were giggling over there, and I went, way to go, Willis, way to go. And so a week goes by, and every once in a while, I'll hold her hand in, in the hallway. And uh, then we're at practice, and they're like, so Willis, have you kissed your girlfriend yet? And I'm like, no, I don't want to kiss. Why would I get to kiss her? Well, you guys are dead dating a week. And they say, here comes the slurs at me again. I'm like, I don't want to do this. And let me tell you, like, 
kissing Michelle wasn't really attractive to me uh, because part, like she was a pretty girl. Uh, she had beautiful red hair and just a gorgeous girl, but she had these big monster braces on her teeth, all right? Just like, like metal mouth. I mean, just huge, the silver that flash, you know? And uh, like, I didn't want to kiss a girl with the big braces. Like she smiled, and there they were. And so uh, like, I didn't want to kiss her or whatever. So I'm like, I told the guys, I'm not going to kiss her. I'm not going to kiss her. And they were like, well, you've got to kiss her. So they're calling me all the names, and the girls were coming like, Michelle's going to cry. She thinks you don't like her. And then you, why won't you kiss her? And I'm like, all right, I'll kiss her. When are you going to kiss her? I don't know. They'd kiss her at break tomorrow. All right, so all night I was nervous. I remember sitting in geogra- Mr. Hill's geography class in seventh grade. I'm sitting there and I'm just in a cold sweat because I know break's coming up and I told people I'd kiss her. Like I come out of the classroom and all the ninth grade guys are lined up by the lockers and the cheerleaders over there and they position Michelle 10 feet from my locker when I come out and they're all watching. And I go to my locker and I'm like, why is everybody watching? And the guy's like, Willis, you know, go. And then they start going, Willis, 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 Willis. So finally, like the peer pressure was too much. I got to do it. So I'm like, I'm just going to go over and kiss her on the cheek and maybe that's enough. So I started heading her way. I'm making her feet from, t- from 10 feet. I'm making my way toward her. I'm just going to kiss her on the cheek. And right at the last minute, as I'm getting ready to kiss her on the cheek, she turns her head to me, sticks out her lips and I'm moving and she juts her head. Like, I don't know how to kiss anybody yet. And boom, we come together and my upper lip gets stuck on her braces. So much so that as I pull away, it cuts my lip and I start bleeding everywhere. And it was awful, awful. I mean, to this day, if I go back to like the reunions or whatever, they're like, hey, there's Bloody Lips Willis. How you doing? Like it's stuck with me my whole life. And I was so embarrassed from it. I didn't want to go back to school the next day, but, but I, just, I just told, I told the girlfriend, I'm like, that's it. I'm not dating her anymore. I'm not kissing anymore. I'm not dancing anymore. And everybody's mad at me. I'm like, I'm not going. She bought her dress. You have to go. I'm not going. And from that day on, listen, I never acquiesced to peer pressure the rest of my life. Like that didn't go well for me. Well, the next day I come to school and Michelle had taken a picture and there's a picture of me and her in her locker, my arm around her there. You know, all the girls had a picture of the boyfriend. It was the cool thing to do back then in locker. And uh, I walked by the locker and, you know, all the girls were just looking at me, you know. And I walked by the locker and she had cut herself out of that picture and it was just me superimposed on a piece of paper in her locker. But I looked, a glance as I was walking by and my face had been defaced. She had drawn a little mustache with a black goatee that went down low like this, put horns on my head, made me with big ears, tail coming out of my behind holding a pitchfork as if I was the devil himself. She hated me. Now here's my question. Was Michelle angry at my picture? Was she angry at the image of me? No, but since she could have no power over me and couldn't control me, in order to show her disdain for me, she attacked and defaced the image of me to get at me. Do you see? And so this is what the devil does. When he sees us as human beings, like it's not said that angels are created in the image of God, but human beings are. When the devil sees any human being, he 
wants to destroy that image of God. That's why destroying life in the womb, causing people to murder, every time a murder takes place, whether the unborn or the born, the devil celebrates because he has helped wipe out another image of God. He's attacking that. And since marriage is the primary way that we understand the Trinity, whenever the devil attacks a marriage, he ultimately attacks our sexuality. He is ultimately attacking the concept of one man, one woman, one lifetime, trying to get people to participate in sexual activity outside of God's context. Do you follow me? How important is human sexuality? How important was it to God to have grandchildren in his own image? He blesses them at the marriage, like he pronounces the marriage. He, he, he performs the first marriage. And then he gives the first command to humankind. And it's not love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are the most important ones, but it's not the first ones. The first command he gives Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, how are they going to do that? How do they multiply? They have to have sex. And again, sex is the only way in the universe to create more images of God. So anything the devil can do to destroy sex and make sex about something other than creating images of God, he's going to do that. Anything you can do to attack a marriage and dissolve it and redefine it and make it something that other, other than what God instituted it to be, he's going to do that. And not only does he say, be fruitful and multiply, it's their job to what? Fill the earth. So not only is he telling Adam and Eve to have sex, what is he also saying? Have sex a lot. You're going to have to have a lot of sex to fill up this earth. Can you, can you imagine like Adam and Eve are sitting there like, okay, I want you all to have sex. What's that going to do? Well, it's going to produce more images of God. And Adam's like, he's looking at Eve and she's looking back at him. And he's like, well, how are we going to do that? And that's where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like, you'll figure it out. And they just walk away. All right. Now, how do we know Adam and Eve figured it out? Because we're all here today, right? 7.5 billion. God created sex. He put it, it's a good thing, it's a pure thing, it's a beautiful thing, it's a desirable thing that God has placed in us to create more images of him. And he's created marriage to reflect to the world, this is what the Trinity looks like. But it, if Satan can attack a marriage, then it leads children to not understand how the Trinity works because they can't understand how the Holy Spirit's supposed to relate or how the mother is supposed to relate to the father, and they're not going to understand how the Holy Spirit relates to God because they see something other than what God designed marriage to be. You see, we were all created. Listen, I want you to understand your purpose in life. You were all created. I was created to bear the image of God for the world to see. That's what God looks like. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christian literally means Christ-like. You look like Jesus. You bear his image to the world. And that leads to takeaway of the day number two. Listen, these guidelines that God gives us in the Bible, they are meant to protect us and to provide for us. That's why God gives us rules in the Bible. He's telling us how to act because that's the way we bear his image to the world. We live out his character. 
Now, I'm going to say this before I go further. Like, if you're here today and you're single and you're not married yet or maybe you never will be, listen, the Apostle Paul wasn't married. I don't want anybody, if you're here today, say if you're single, like you're a second-class Christian. It's not true. And we put a lot of pressure on single people to get married. And listen, I've seen a lot of people get married before they should or to someone they shouldn't. And any married person who is married to the wrong person will tell you you're better off being single. I'm also here this morning to talk about God's word, but I'm not here to belittle people who have been through a divorce. There's usually so much guilt and pain associated with that marital dissolution. I don't want to add to your guilt and pain this morning. Please, please, I I don't mean to do that. And like I talked about last week, sometimes we have to allow for a divorce. If, If someone won't have anything to do with you, they abandon you. If they walk away, that's where Jesus says, you know, shake it off. Let it go. Let them go. And there are individual cases in which God does allow for divorce. We'll talk about that later in the book of Mark. But on the whole, listen, societies that reflect God's value flourish. And this is why God gives us the, the guidelines to live by is because we are supposed to reflect the image of God. And societies that reflect God's principles, those flourish because we're operating the way we are supposed to be. Marriages that don't look like God's definition of marriage cause a society not to flourish. And when a society honors marriage and sexuality God's way, that society does well. But when a society doesn't honor marriage as God, the way God intended it, those societies tend to not do well. Why? Because we're designed to be like him. I'll give you just some examples of human flourishing. All the rules in the Bible are just given there for the sake of human flourishing. A Harvard study, I'm, I'm going to give you studies today, they're not Christian fundamentalist studies. Harvard study from just recently so that when you're looking at married people versus those who have been divorced, you know, there are a lot of jokes about marriage. Like we put it down, like comedians, they get up front and they put down marriage all the time. Like this one, like, have you heard this before? Why do men usually die before their wives? Have you ever heard that? Because they want to. I mean, that's like, like the guys laughed at that. The women are like, that's not a funny joke. All right. But listen, like marriage is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And when we do marriage like it's designed to be done, it goes well for us. Listen, when you compare people who are married versus those who've been through a divorce, married people live longer. They have fewer strokes and heart attacks. People say, well, they must not be in my marriage. No, it's true, like on a whole, okay? They have a lower chance of becoming depressed. Married people are less likely to have advanced cancer. They're more likely to survive cancer when they get it. They uh, survive major operations more often. They have a better immune system. They tend to avoid risky behaviors. They eat better than those who have been divorced. They're generally happier. They're financially, married couples are more financially stable than those who are not. Children who are from stable marriages are less likely to commit suicide, to suffer from depression, to get pregnant outside of marriage or to contract the STD, to be retained in school, 
are less likely to, from stable marriages, children from stable marriages are less likely to drop out of school or get suspended. They're much less likely, much less likely to use tobacco, alcohol, or other addictive drugs. They're less likely to be homeless. These children are less likely to live in poverty when they got a mom and dad who are living together. They're less likely to have strained relationships with their parents. They're less likely to have health problems. The list, listen, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Just about everything that you would want to measure shows us that God gives us his guidelines for marriage and really all of them to protect and to provide for us. And while we're on the subject of the definition of marriage, what marriage is supposed to be, CDC reports this. Again, this is a secular government study. When compared to the general population, homosexual relationships versus heterosexual relationships, homosexuals, people in homosexual relationships, are more than twice as likely to commit suicide as someone in a heterosexual relationship. They have a higher rate of STDs to suffer from depression. People in homosexual relationships have the highest rates of tobacco, alcohol, and addictive drug use. There are higher rates of homelessness and poverty. And we see this over and over and over again. When people, when a society honors God's institution of marriage, it goes well for them, but if they don't, it doesn't go well. Why? Because we were designed to look like him. You know, if you ever hear the word uh, code, like you got to build something up to code. A lot of times when you hear it's got to be built to code, do we think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Usually what do we think? Like, oh man, I got to do it up to code. Why do we say when we're building stuff, you got to do it according to code? Why do we do it? It's to protect and to provide. Those rules aren't there to hurt us. They're there to protect and provide safety for us, okay? And that's why God gives us the rules in the Bible. It's to protect us. It's not to hurt us. I was thinking about some redneck engineering this week, okay? We're designed to look like God. Duct tape was not designed to hold 7-Eleven coffee cups, all right? This will work for a while, but duct tape, it's not, it's not designed for that, okay? So it's not going to work the way it's supposed to, okay? Um, this wasn't designed to be a boat. The trolling motor, like, this is in Alabama, in a lake in Alabama, all right? So uh, I had to get that in. I just had to get it in. Like, I can do that in Tennessee, okay? So redneck, like, look at even the cross in here. You got the redneck pool, Okay? Uh, here's the redneck jacuzzi. Are you ready for this? You're talking about not up to code. There you go. There's a redneck jacuzzi. <laughs> Probably not safe. Don't try this at home, okay? Why does God do this? Listen, the most important thing, why we study theology, why do we study who God is? Well, the number one reason is because I cannot worship that which I do not know. People worship God all over the world, but they worship him wrongly because their idea of who God is, their understanding of who God is, is skewed. But the second reason we studied theology is we cannot flourish unless I'm in alignment with the character of God. God gives us the code. We're supposed to line up with that because we flourish when we act like Jesus, Can you imagine how great it would be to live in a society where we all treated each other with love and respect the way Jesus would like us to? What a utopia that would be. 
That's why God gives us the code. Human beings flourish when they follow what this book says to do. Do you get that? That's not true of every religion in the world. And that leads to my final takeaway of the day is we align with God by faith in Christ, not our personal works. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, when we put the beam in back in the back, I came in here and I saw them. They were working a plumb bob, a plumb line. Have you ever seen this? And what it is is when you're building something or you want to make something straight, what you do is you put a weight on the end of a line, okay? And then you drop it down there. And like if I'm looking at that beam, I'm going to get this where it's steady and it's holding still, all right? And then I'm going to look to make sure that it's lining up right. And if you're building a brick house or a cinder block wall, I remember seeing uh, my grandpa doing this one time. He went out with a plumb bob and he was lining up the wall and every time they put another cinder block up, okay, he would plumb bob it to make sure that the wall was in line from top to bottom. Because if, if the line is not if the wall is not going straight up, if it's leaning out, it's going to cause construction problems. If it's leaning in, it's going to cause construction problems. So God gives us a spiritual plumb bob, a plumb line, which has been used for century. Isaiah says this, Behold, says the Lord, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. It's the foundation for a building. It is a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, you've got to believe in God that, in the foundation that he lays. He says, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Like God is lining up a society, lines up our lives to say, do we meet that standard? Are we leaning away? Are we leaning inside or are we straight? Are we lining up with God's code? Okay, it's the same way with tires. Like, I realize this about when I'm driving, okay? Uh, I hate it. It is a pet peeve of mine, something that drives me crazy. I'm not OCD about many things, but if my car isn't perfectly in line, I hate driving on the interstate. Like, I have my hand on the wheel and my car lean going this way. I think it's dangerous. I don't know what it is, but if my car isn't just right, it drives my wife crazy, okay? But here's the thing I had to realize about myself. I don't have the skills necessary to get my car in alignment. How many of you in this room have the skills necessary to align your own car's steering? Raise your hand if you have the ability to do that. Like nobody? Like, I thought there might be one hand in here, okay? Like Keith Young's son, Sai. He's a mechanic. He, he works uh, at, a, at a garage. And he knows how to do alignment and get it lined up straight. And what we have to realize, if we can't do that, we have to say, I gotta take my problem, I'm out of alignment, I've gotta take it to someone who can get my car in line, someone who can get my life in line, okay? And this is something I, I wanna explain to you. Watch this. This is so foundational for everything I'm gonna say. It's the most important thing I'm gonna say today. God says that for our sake, God the Father made Jesus, talking about putting it in context, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Why is this such an important verse? We can't, listen, every week when I come in here like, you gotta follow this, you gotta follow this, here's the code for this, here's the code for parenting, here's the code for marriage, here's the code for business, here's the code. 
you can come here in here every week and feel like you're getting all these rules laid down on you. And when you're trying to follow all these rules and they're coming from the outside, but there's nothing on the inside, it's going to weigh you down and you're going to leave here every week feeling like a failure. And the last, listen, listen, listen. The last thing I want you to do is come to church and feel like your toes get stepped on a little bit and, and then feeling like you got to leave feeling guilty because you're not living up to the standard, which is Jesus. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is when you're sitting in church, every time that I present the code to you, it's like talking about your car being in alignment. You need to be thinking, I'm doomed. I can't do it. And because we realize we're doomed, we can't follow all the code on our own. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that he might become righteousness for us, that he might get us in alignment because we can't align our own spiritual lives. Do you get that? Like only Jesus can lead you to have a marriage the way God designed it. Jesus will line you up to flourish in your life. You can't line yourself up to flourish in life. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the, and the rules of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God will feel like a burden on you if they're coming from the outside. But by faith in Jesus, he comes on the inside and he gives us a desire to love the code because the code reflects the person of Christ. Do you see that? Paul says this in the book of Philippians, that his desire is to be found in Jesus. Watch. And this comes from a guy who was a Pharisee who followed all the rules. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from the code, from the rule book, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, through faith in Christ, dependent on our faith. Here's my question for you this morning. Where is your hope? Where's your hope to flourish? Listen, if it's, I'm gonna follow, if you leave church thinking, I'm gonna follow the rules better, then I have failed as a communicator of the good news to you. Because you're not going to leave here and be gooder. You're just going to wear yourself out. But when you realize, I can't get in alignment on my own. My only hope is Jesus. That's when the Holy Spirit can come to work on the inside. You repent from you doing things your way. And you say, Jesus, I need you to work in my heart because my only hope is you. Your only hope for a godly marriage is that Christ intervenes in both of your sinful hearts to make you both more like Jesus. Your only hope for a godly family is that Jesus intervenes into your children, into your lives to make you more like Jesus so that from the inside out, you love the code because the code reflects the character of Christ. This isn't just a sermon for those who we would say are unsaved. Because a lot of people pray the prayer, they get baptized, but then they say, and now I gotta follow all the rest of the rules. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, don't follow the rules, follow me. Are you willing to allow Jesus to come into your life
and make you more like him? It starts with you saying to Jesus, I'm doomed without you. I can't be good enough. My only hope is you. I pray that every day. I don't need to get saved every day, but I need Jesus in my life every day. Will you pray that with me now? Let's bow our heads. Jesus, I realize I can't be good enough. These sermons that I deliver every week, I can't follow my own rules. I'm, I'm the king of hypocrites. I realize my only hope is you. When I stand before God someday, I'm not gonna have a list where my good outweighs my bad. Like, it's not good enough. It's not gonna be good enough. My only hope is you. Lord, for our church, our only hope is you. We, we can't greet people well enough into the kingdom of God. We can't teach kids in Sunday school. I can't preach well enough. My only hope is you. Help me to love you more than I love my sin. Change me from the inside out that I might reflect your glory to the world around me. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.